All right. If you are able and willing, please may you stand for the reading of God's word this morning from Philippians chapter 2, 12 to 18. Philippians chapter 2 is 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain, run, yeah, run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that is life to us, that penetrates even the darkest of hearts, and that brings change by the power of your Spirit to us. Lord, we pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word, that would fall on fertile soil. Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and to listen, and that um, you would be glorified now through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, there are times in our lives where... Perhaps we find ourselves ensnared in sin. We keep falling into the same sins. And we almost feel powerless against it. And perhaps you have identified with the Apostle Paul's own struggle in this regard. Hey, Romans 7, 19. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I mean, he's describing in very clear terms the human condition. Even as Christians, we can get into these debilitating cycles where we can feel like failures as, as Christians. And perhaps this is rooted on, on the assumption that Although um, Christ has saved us by his grace, it's up to us to live out our lives for Christ in our own strength. Maybe we believe something to the effect of, well, we in by God's grace, but we've got to stay in by our own works. Now, we know as we've been journeying through this letter to the Philippians over the, the past couple of months, Okay, the Philippian church, Paul's writing this letter, um, the Philippian church has been facing pressure and persecution from the culture around them. And so what we see Paul doing here in this text is he's encouraging them here to persevere in their faith, 
in the face of these trials, to resist the temptation to sin, which is a part of the pressure that their culture is exerting against them. And he tells them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. But he doesn't just leave it there. Okay, he reminds them that they're not alone in this. Okay, they're not abandoned by God just to get on now with the Christian life in their own strength. Okay, he's not saying, no, you're in by God's grace and you stay in by your own works. No, he's reminding them here of the tr- gospel truth that God is still working in us by the power of the Holy Spirit as believers. That he is the one who is sanctifying us. That he is the one who is empowering us to resist temptation and to live for his glory. So what we're going to see this morning is that because it is God who works in you by the Holy Spirit, you are able to live a life that glorifies him. So three points. Sanctification is God's work. Secondly, sanctification in action. And lastly, sanctification through suffering. So sanctification is God's work from verses 12 and 13. Let me read them again quickly. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, maybe you've heard that and you've you've read that in the past and you think, doesn't this sound like a contradiction, Paul? On one hand, verse 12 says, work out your own salvation. And uh, the the Greek that is is used for, for work out there, it means produce or, or make happen. It's a, it's a strong word. It's used as an imperative. Okay, that you must, something you need to, to do. But then you, you read the next verse and then it says, oh, no, well, it, it's God who is working in us to, to make this happen. So what is going on here? Is it that we must work out our own salvation or is it God who's working out our salvation? Is, is this an example of a contradiction in the scriptures? Or can both of these things be true? Is it that we must do our bits and then God must do, do his bits in our salvation? Okay, is salvation then some kind of a synergy between us and God? Well, doesn't the rest of the Bible tell us very clearly that it's God who is the one who saves. Yeah, we don't save ourselves. We don't work out work for our salvation. In Jonah 2 verse 9 says very clearly, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then in place like Romans 4 verse 5, Paul doubles down and, and he says it is God who justifies, listen to this, those who don't work, he justifies. Those who are ungodly, he justifies the ungodly. So what's going on here? God saves those who don't work. 
But yet we called in this text to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. So let's first of all, let's zoom out and we need to firstly understand the nature of our salvation. Because our salvation encompasses three aspects. Firstly, we have been saved, past tense. Okay, we, the moment we believed in Jesus, God justified us at that moment. He made us right with him. He forgave our sins as far as the east is from the west. He imputed or counted Christ's righteousness to us. So we come, can come into his, his presence. Okay, Jesus has done all that. Okay, God has done all that. We, we, we can't lose that gift. Okay, if we're in Christ, we, we are his forever. This is the nature of this pure gift of grace in Christ. But there's still a sense in that we are in the process of being saved. In in terms of present tense. So we've been saved past tense, but there's still a present tense ongoingness to our salvation. And we call this sanctification. This ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And Hebrews 10, 14 says that by Christ's offering on the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So in God's sight, we perfect in Christ, if we're in him, we entirely accepted in him, but at the same time, we are still being made holy. That process of holiness is still being worked out, and it's going to carry until the day we die. But then there's a third aspect even to our salvation, and that is the future tense of salvation, is that we will be saved one day. This is referring to our glorification. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Philippians 1 verse 6. Said that God will bring to completion the good work that he started in us at the day of Jesus Christ. So the promise that we have regarding our future salvation is that if we in Christ now, we are guaranteed an eternity with him. Okay, God finishes what he starts. He doesn't do any half jobs. So when verse 12 here speaks about working out your own salvation, it's not saying that you need to work for your salvation. Okay, your eternal salvation in Christ is not in question here. Let's be clear. Okay, that's been already accomplished by Christ if we have received the gospel. Okay, we've been justified. We've been saved in In the past tense, we've received his gift of grace. It's all his work. There's nothing we can do to earn that. Absolutely nothing. It's a gift to be received by faith alone and Christ alone. So the sense of salvation that Paul instead is talking about here in in Philippians 2 is salvation in the present tense. Hey, he's talking about our sanctification. So he's saying that essentially we should... Act like we saved. Okay, we need to take our salvation seriously. And so seriously, he says, we've got to work it out with fear and trembling. Those are strong words. Because the reality is that God has given us this amazing free gift in Christ. And that gift is that 
our sins have been forgiven. I mean, that's, that's a massive deal because that means because of that truth, we can come into the presence of God. Okay, we've had our sins forgiven. We are reconciled to God as his, as his own son. So another part of this is that we've had an identity change that we now in Christ. And this is a significant identity change that we must not lose perspective of. Hey, there's a, a story that, that, that goes that when the, in, in the United States, um, when there was slavery, um, when, the, when the slaves were released from, when it was, slavery was done away with, a lot of African-American slaves stayed with their masters. And the reason for that is they could not conceive life in this new reality. They all they had known was slavery, and so they, some of them just tended to stick stick with the masters. And fortunately, that's for some of us, even as Christians, that we do the same thing. We don't, if we've been living in a life of sin, we don't know anything else besides that, and so we we don't embrace our, our new identity. In Christ. And this new identity is that the power that sin once had over us is really broken. You need to believe that. We are not like we were before we were in Christ, where we could not help but sin. In Christ, is the power of the Spirit, what He has wrought in us is that domination that we were once under. Um, under sin has been broken. Yeah, we've been, as Romans six eighteen says, we have been set free from sin and have become instead slaves of righteousness. This is a big deal. It's the nature of our new life in Christ. The, the, we're not bound to just inevitably carry on in our sin. No, Christ has given us the resources from heaven, empowered us now to live a life as a a new creation in Christ, not under the dominion of sin anymore, and able to glorify God. We are able to obey now and live a life that glorifies God because the Spirit really is working in you. He really has freed you from the shackles. So he's working in us, given us the promise of eternity. So hold dear to these truths, these gospel truths, all these things that he has done. And therefore, in the light of what he's done, walk, work it out with fear and trembling. Don't take this gift lightly. Don't go back and eat the vomit of your sin like a dog. I mean, that's imagery that scripture uses. Why would you go back to vomit when you have been ushered into this incredible new life? Live instead knowing that you belong to Christ. Live as a slave of righteousness. In chapter 127, Philippians says something similar. Let your, which we looked at a couple of weeks, so let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, the nature of the gospel is that it, it, it transforms us. 
Okay, our, our belief and, and trust in Christ is not a purely academic thing. It's not just a cerebral thing that happens in your mind. It's not affirming a, just a theological statement and then you get on with, with your life as, as, as before. No. If we are truly in Christ, the truth is that we are being changed daily by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is at work in us, convicting us of our sins and empowering us to obey him and live differently from how we, we used to. And just as a note of encouragement, if you feel convicted of your sins, rejoice. Because that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in you. An unregenerate person does not feel conviction for their sins. They'll carry on as if nothing's happening. So rejoice if you're feeling convicted of your sins. It's evidence the Spirit's working in your life and sanctifying you. So if we truly in Christ, if we're being changed by His Spirit, He is working us. We can be encouraged in that. Now, we need to understand these verses in the light of the verses which we looked at last week. Okay? Chapter 2, 1 to 11. If you were here last week, you will remember that the heart of that text was looking at how Jesus is our example, specifically the humility of Jesus as our example. Remember, verse 5 to 8 told us that though Jesus was God, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born as man, humbling himself, and being obedient to the point of death on the cross. So Jesus' obedience to the Father, his obedience that led him to the cross, his obedience is an example for us. And so this is exactly why Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Just as Jesus kept the commandments of his father, our example that we have from Christ is that we, as a result of having believed the gospel, we are obedient to Christ's commandments. Now, Obedience to God in our lives is also is evidence that God is working in us. And this is the nature of the working out of our salvation. But if there's no change in our lives, if we're continuing to pursue sinful patterns and lifestyles with not even a desire to, to want to repent or change, or not even a vaguest conviction of sin, well, then you have to ask yourself, well, have you truly received Christ and his gospel in the first place? Verse 13 goes on to say that it is God who works in you to will and work for his good pleasure. So doesn't this then seemingly cancel out our obedience in the working out part of our salvation? No. Okay? In Christ, certainly, we consciously try to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. We resist temptation. We seek God's will in his word, and we try to live according to that. We, we put to death to sin. We mortify sin. We flee from sin. 
we confess our sins when we stumble, we forgive those who sin against us. All those things are genuinely our own actions. But verse 13 shows us that our working out our salvation through our obedience, all of those things, those things are only possible because of the grace of God. Okay, it is God who is the one who's doing the working. Look at the text there. Okay, the will and work and desire in us, verse 13, to live for God, that's only there because the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Okay, this is all for, as the text says, his good pleasure. Meaning that it's all that's entirely dependent on his sovereign will. So then, is this a matter of God doing his bit and we doing our bit in our salvation? Kind of a synergy? No. Okay, God works and we also work. But every bit of our working out of our salvation is just the effect of God working in us. The more we live for God, the more we put sin to death and live unto righteousness, the more we can be encouraged that the Holy Spirit's working in our lives. So our salvation, including our sanctification, is ultimately all from him. We are not left alone in this Christian life just to get on with it. The great gospel promise here is that he promises to continue to work in us. And this is exactly why the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 35, tells us. It says, what is sanctification? Now listen carefully. The answer is not sanctification is our work and God's work. This is the answer. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. That's a gospel promise. It's his work whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Brings us to our second point, sanctification in action. From verse 14, let me read it again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So we see now that the origin of sanctification is with God. Now, what does it look like when the rubber hits the road? Well, we look to Jesus. Because remember, this is the context of the text. That's what we, the, the verses that we looked at last week, just preceding these, they were all about Jesus. And this text begins with, therefore. So just as Jesus did, so in the light of that, that's got to affect us. Okay, so we saw last week that uh, the text described how Jesus was, he was God eternal. He humbled himself by coming to earth as man, as a servant, being obedient to the Father to the point of death on a cross. 
And then God raised him to life and exalted him as Lord over all. And so we're going to see and pack these next couple of verses that Christ is our example in four ways. So firstly, he's our example in that to not to grumble. Okay, verse 14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, this phrase here about grumbling is an allusion to the grumbling of the Israelites when, while they were wandering in the wilderness after God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And um, though God had saved them by his grace, released them from the oppression of the Egyptians and is now ushering them into this new promised land, what did they do? Did they live with thankful hearts, rejoicing in this, this salvation that God had given them and uh, content with all these things that he was blessing them with? No. Okay, they grumbled and moaned for 40 years and went into all sorts of idolatry and pagan worship and immorality. Um, it was just a reflection of their wayward hearts. And you see, true obedience is from the heart. It's really no use if we obey Christ outwardly, but inwardly we're grumbling and we're moaning like the Israelites. Because that kind of outward obedience, it tends not to last very long. And you see that with the Israelites in the wilderness. Because we usually end up reverting to what is truly in our hearts. See, the, the, the problem here is our heart condition. Is that we still love our sin more than we love God. Now contrast this to the obedience of Christ. Okay, we saw last week in chapter 2 in, in verse 8, Christ willingly obeyed his father to the point of death. Hebrews 12 too says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So you see, Jesus' obedience was from the heart. He, he, was, he, he endured the most painful and horrific event in human history. And he was able to face it with joy. Why? Because his heart was captured by the glory of God. So it brings us to our, our second point here of how Christ is our example in sanctification, and that is be blameless and innocent. Verse 15 says that God's will for us here is that we would be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. So this is the end goal of our sanctification, that on the day we meet Jesus, we will be made completely perfect in Christ. Okay, chapter 1, Philippians verse 10 says that we will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So we are not to expect sinless perfection this side of eternity. It is only promised when we are glorified. But between now and then, we are, we are becoming, we are on the journey of becoming blameless and innocent. We are still struggling with sin. So that's why that phrase from Romans 7 in the beginning that I read, Paul struggled with sin, that's still a real thing for us. Okay, Christians still struggle with sin. It's a fact. We know it from our own experience. But the good news that despite the struggles, the promise is that God is working and renewing our hearts day by day by the power of his spirit 
And he's doing the hard work of putting sin to death in our lives. So you could say we are sinning saints. Now we see in Philippians 2 verse 8 that Jesus became obedient to the point of death. Okay, Jesus' obedience included his submitting to the Father's will to die on the, to die on the cross. But Jesus' obedience was not limited to that. It was only Jesus who managed to live a completely perfect and holy life, obeying the entire law of God. And, and the result of that is that Jesus is in himself the only righteous one. Because we know that within ourselves, we are not righteous. Okay, even though we're in Christ, we still struggle with sin. We break the law of God every day. Yet it's incredible that God calls those of us in Christ, what does he call us? He calls us holy or, or saints. It's the same from the same Greek word. And that's why I looked at this verse earlier. Hebrews 10, 14 says that we've been perfected. And, and, and here in verse 16, we are called children of God. So how is this possible that says sinners are now called holy and we call children of God. Well, in the coming weeks, we're going to get to Philippians 3 verse 9. So he has a little bit of a sneak preview for that. It says there that we don't have a, a righteousness of our own that comes from the law. In other words, we are not righteous because we continue to break the law. None of us can say in ourselves we are truly righteous. But instead, the text carries on and says, but we have a righteousness which comes not through our own obedience to the law, but through faith in Christ. So God declares us already holy and blameless and pure simply because we have trusted in the one who is completely holy and righteous and pure in himself. Jesus, he, he's the only one who's completely obeyed the law. And so it's his righteousness that now clothes us. Okay, Luther called this an alien right. We are clothed with an alien righteousness. We imputes his, his alien righteousness to us, which means that when God sees us, he sees Christ. And that's how we can come into the presence of God. And thirdly, Shine as lights of the world. Now, it says here that we find ourselves in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So as God continues to transform us, as he makes us more holy and more like Christ, the side effect of this is that we will become increasingly different and set apart from the world. Okay, we will stand out. We won't blend in anymore with this crooked and twisted generation. And the, the image, the, the, the phrase that's used here in, in the Greek is actually giving us the image of the night sky. Tonight, look out at the night sky and the twinkling stars. That's the image that's used here for, that as Christians, that, that's what we are like. Our little, we are these little lights in the midst of the sea of darkness. But in that sea of darkness, because God is working in us by his spirit, we are shining like these little stars. 
And we know that ultimately Jesus was the true light of the world who gives light to everyone. And so the nature of this light is that when it shines, the darkness flees. So this should be of great encouragement to us that when we are in the midst of dark places with our friendship circles, our families, our work colleagues, we bring the light of Christ. Because God is sanctifying us, we act and speak differently because he's empowering us to proclaim Christ in, in the darkness. And fourthly, hold fast to the word of life. So verse 16 goes on to say that we must hold fast to the word of life so that we can be proud that we did not run or labor in vain. So the means by which God chooses to sanctify us is through his word, or what the text calls here the word of life. The only way in which we are able to know the, the will of God for our lives is going up fasting for 40 days and waiting for dreams and visions and, you know, okay, through his word. He's clearly revealed loud and clear his will for us in his word, in black and white. And so Paul says that we must hold fast to it. Must read it, study it, come to church and hear it preached. So it is certainly good to, to read God's word and study it individually. But as the Westminster Logic Catechism, question answer 155 says, God especially blesses the preaching of the word. There's something to hearing, sitting under the preached word every Lord's day at the worship service that God does a special work by his spirit um, in our lives. That's why it's so important to be here every Lord's Day to sit under his word. It's the main way God speaks to us. It's one of, we call the means of grace, the ways in which, one of the ways which God promises to work effectually in our lives by his spirit. And the more of God's word that we have in our hearts, the beauty is, is that the harder it is for us to fall into sin. And that's why Psalm 119, 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. And you see, all of this points to the end goal, the day of Christ. That Paul's desire for us, as it was for the Philippians, is that we finish well, we don't run in vain. We don't labor in vain. We finish strong. And just as God highly exalted Jesus after the cross, so we too can look forward to the day in which God will glorify us with him in eternity. Then we will see him face to face. We will have reached the goal of our sanctification. We will dwell with him in his glory. We will be his pure and spotless bride. This brings us to our final point, sanctified through suffering. So from verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Now we've known that Paul's writing this letter while he's in prison. He's not in the lap of luxury, he's suffering in prison and he 
He has this sword, thread of the sword hanging over his head. He could be put to death. He's awaiting trial. And so he alludes to that here, that he could be poured out as a drink offering. Okay? He could be sacrificed. But despite these circumstances, I mean, you would expect someone to, who could be on death row be very depressed and very, you know, dear makar. But despite these circumstances, he's glad and he's rejoicing. And he tells us that in the midst of his own suffering, well, we too should be glad and rejoice as well. Why? What is there to be glad about in tough times? Well, I'm sure that you will speak from your own experience here, is that it's especially during tough times that God tends to work most powerfully in our lives. Times of suffering are opportunities for God to sanctify us. And that's exactly why James 1, 2 to 4 says that we should count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. That we may be perfect. That's the goal of sanctification here. The goal of suffering is sanctification. So whatever burden or heartache or or challenge that, that, that you've been wrestling with, brothers and sisters, know that God has permitted it in your life for your own good in order to sanctify you, in order to make you less in love with your sin and in order to make your hearts more captivated and dependent on Christ himself. And it's exactly this reason why Paul says that we can be glad and rejoice in these times. So to bring this to a close, you know, it can get easy to get overwhelmed by sin in your own life. Hey, you can feel like we are fighting a losing battle. Brothers and sisters, you need to realize that God has not left you alone in this battle. Sin's power over you has been broken. And God is right now at work in your life by the power of the Spirit for his good pleasure, as this text promises. He is the one who's putting death to sin or sin to death in you. He is giving you power every day to resist temptation and to live instead for his glory because he who started a good work in you will bring it to completion. And the good news, brothers and sisters, is that God extends great grace to struggling sinners through Jesus. Trust in Christ, the only blameless one, the one, the only one who's innocent and without blemish, the spotless Lamb of God. And because of his perfect obedience on the cross, you can receive his promise, the forgiveness of your sins, his promise to clothe you in his perfect righteousness in order that you may know his love, his strength, and his peace, and one day be raised up in glory when we meet him in the new creation. Amen. Let's pray.